This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. America needs to sort through the disastrous foreign policy decisions inspired by Henry Kissinger. Usually, Americans tend to ignore foreign policy. It is messy and tricky and difficult to understand. However, the death of Henry Kissinger last month recalled one of the few periods that foreign policy was on the newspaper's front pages. For those born since the disastrous Vietnam War, it may be difficult to understand why Dr. Kissinger was so famous. His short stature, homely face, and thick German accent would seem to inspire ridicule rather than respect. However, those who lived through that time wanted to see an end to the war. They also wanted reassurance that World War III would never happen. Henry Kissinger's presence seemed to promise that these ends would be achieved. Of course, many disagreed with Kissinger's views. The early members of the TFP saw him as a dangerous man, determined to compromise with the evil of communism. Mr. John Horvat was among those dissenters. He looks back on Dr. Kissinger in his article, The Disastrous Kissinger Era Comes to an End. On November 28, 2023, Henry Kissinger died at age 100. The former Secretary of State advised 10 presidents and participated in countless international forums. Until the end, he visited with foreign statesmen and wrote op-eds in major media. Few were the honors he did not receive. All doors were open to him. His death signals more than his passing into eternity. It coincides with the chaotic events now ripping apart the framework he helped put in place. A disastrous Kissingerian era of concessions, compromises, and surrenders is ending as the world enters an unknown and uncertain future. Few statesmen have been rewarded so richly for such great failures. Indeed, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in the Paris Accords, which brought an end to American involvement in Vietnam and the fall of South Vietnam into communist hands. Whether it is the Middle East, Taiwan, or Ukraine, the world is still paying the consequences of his brokered agreements, seemingly magical shuttle diplomacy, and brutal realism. He was controversial, as both the left and the right now find fault with his legacy. Dr. Kissinger entered the national political scene with his appointment by President Richard Nixon as Assistant for National Security Affairs in December 1968. He later served as Secretary of State from 1973 to 1977 under the Nixon and Ford administrations. After leaving the White House, he maintained a weighty presence on the American political scene with frequent commentaries and consultations. He is remembered for changing the direction of American foreign policy leftward in a series of moves that prolonged communist rule and softened Western resolve. Suffice it to recall that his three greatest foreign policy catastrophes were realized in 1972. As Secretary of State, he did what few leftists would dare to do. He took the world's most anti-communist government under President Nixon to engage with the world's most brutal communist governments. He granted those regimes the best terms, always facilitating the spread of communism. 
These offers were made when communist governments suffered from great weaknesses due to their disastrous economic systems and when the movement experienced a decline in its persuasive power to mobilize the world masses. The 1972 diplomatic offensive began with President Nixon's visit to Red China and tyrant Mao Zedong on February 22nd. This visit led to the shameful One China policy, thus betraying Taiwan. This small opening brought torrents of Western aid and investment monies into China. This monster of the West's own making now threatens the world 60 years later. The West was the loser in this risky game. It has made every concession while communism still reigns supreme in a now militarized China that challenges America and the West. In May 1972, Henry Kissinger arranged a summit in which President Nixon paid a state visit to Moscow to sign 10 formal agreements. The anti-communist president developed a policy of detente that warmed relations between the United States and the Soviet Union. The accords extended credits, grain exports, industrial development, arms limitation, and other benefits that favored the economically challenged communist regime. Indeed, the ABM Missile Treaty, SALT-1, hampered American defense efforts to the point that President George W. Bush was forced to withdraw from it. Dr. Kissinger's support for Russia continued even to the present, with his plea for compromise and concessions after the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. His crowning achievement was his most obvious and spectacular failure, the 1972 breakthrough of the Paris Accords negotiating the end of the Vietnam War. President Nixon's so-called peace with honor consisted of the withdrawal of American troops from South Vietnam and the subsequent cutting off of funding. That failed agreement made him the public figure whose name symbolizes all the disasters and shame that the free world suffered in Vietnam. Countless Vietnamese lost their lives in this debacle, and the West took decades to regain his confidence after this negotiated defeat. Thus was the legacy of Henry Kissinger. He masterminded a policy shift leftward carried out by the right. He took the West from a position of strength to one of weakness. The communist regimes gained the time, trade, and Western investment funds needed to survive their disastrous policies and build up their military might. Everything was sacrificed to reach a modus vivendi with communism to avoid war and conflict. America and the West now face the tragic consequences of his policy of concessions, detente, unprincipled trade, and the offshoring of so much of our manufacturing base to an ideological enemy bent on our annihilation. If there is a poster child for the failure of Kissinger's worldview, it is Vladimir Putin. For a time, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it appeared that Kissinger's happy talk would carry the day. In fact, many held out hope that the new Russian Federation would become an important ally of the United States. Mr. Julio Laredo looks at the failure of those hopes in his essay, Can Russia and NATO Cooperate? Vladimir Putin says, no, it is time for the facts. Russian President Vladimir Putin argues that the trigger for the current war between Russia and Ukraine is the threat of NATO expansion toward the east. 
He argues that this represents a direct threat to the Russian Federation. Therefore, Russia's attack on Ukraine is an act of self-defense, at least in his mind. However, the facts tell a very different story. NATO members shared borders with Warsaw Pact nations for decades. Sometimes those borders consisted of a simple river or wall. Yet NATO never attacked them. From the fall of the Warsaw Pact to 2014, a closer relationship between NATO and the Russian Federation appeared likely. Some experts even speculated that Russia might even join NATO. When the Iron Curtain collapsed in 1989, the West considered two opposing diplomatic views regarding the future of the Union of Socialist Republics, USSR. The first proposed a new partnership with post-Soviet Russia to attract it to the Western sphere. It would be much like the relationship between Tsarist Russia and post-Napoleonic France in 1815. The second version argued that Russia should be punished harshly, like Germany after World War I. The conciliatory first vision largely prevailed, as the West extended a conciliatory hand to the dying USSR. Thus, a series of contacts gradually brought the USSR and its successor, the Russian Federation, toward the West. Secretary of State James Baker visited Moscow in February 1990. Mikhail Gorbachev reciprocated by visiting the United States in May 1990. The Soviet Union participated in the G7 summit in Houston in July 1990. The Russian Federation joined the World Trade Organization in 1993 and the expanded G8 in 1997. It appeared that Russia was leaving Marxism behind. Rapprochement with NATO was part of the anticipated thaw. At the 1990 NATO summit in London, member countries approved the London Declaration. It optimistically stated, The Soviet Union has embarked on the long journey towards a free society. The member states of the North Atlantic Alliance proposed to the member states of the Warsaw Treaty Organization a joint declaration in which we solemnly state that we are no longer adversaries and reaffirm our intention to refrain from the threat or use of force. Unquote. To implement the London Declaration, the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, NACC, was established on December 20, 1991. The Council was designed to be, quote, a forum for dialogue and cooperation with NATO's former Warsaw Pact adversaries, unquote. The following day, at the NACC's inaugural meeting, Soviet Ambassador Afanasievsky dramatically announced the end of the Soviet Union's legal existence. On June 17, 1992, the Russian Federation United States Charter for Partnership and Friendship was signed in Washington. The document states, The United States of America and the Russian Federation reiterate their determination to build a democratic peace, one founded on the twin pillars of political and economic freedom. Unquote. The climate then reigning can be seen in an article by General Sergei V. Stepashin, head of the Russian Federation's Defense and Security Committee, published in 1993. The general proposed a close coordination with NATO. 
transforming Russia into a geopolitical bridge between the Euro-Atlantic and the Asia-Pacific security system. The article culminated in the appeal for a new Marshall Plan for post-communist revival with a conversion of Russia into a democratic society. In 1994, Russia formally joined NATO's Partnership for Peace. The organization attempted to establish strong ties between NATO and the former Soviet bloc. Subsequently, 14 member countries of the pact joined NATO. In December, the Budapest Memorandum on Reduction of Nuclear Weapons was signed between the United States, Great Britain, and the Russian Federation. Russia-NATO relations were so close that in 1996, a Russian contingent took part in the NATO-SFOR military mission in Bosnia and Herzegovina. At the conclusion of the Paris summit in May 1997, Russia signed a solemn agreement with NATO, the founding act on mutual relations, cooperation, and security between NATO and the Russian Federation. The official language echoed the London Declaration of 1991. Quote, NATO and Russia do not consider each other as adversaries. The founding act is the expression of an enduring commitment undertaken at the highest political level to bring together a lasting and inclusive peace in the Euro-Atlantic area, unquote. Then the language shifted to reassure Russia that NATO and any new members pose no danger. Quote, the member states of NATO reaffirm that they have no intention, no plan, and no reason to deploy nuclear weapons on the territory of the new members. Unquote. Obviously, Russia consented, at least tacitly, to the admission of the new members. By this point, Russia's eventual NATO membership was taken for granted. The NATO-Russia Permanent Joint Council was created to facilitate this process. The Rome Declaration perfected the initial accord in Paris signed in May 2002 by NATO member countries and the Russian Federation. A part of this declaration reads, We affirm our determination to build together a lasting and inclusive peace in the Euro-Atlantic area on the principles of democracy and cooperative security and the principle that the security of all states in the Euro-Atlantic community is indivisible, unquote. The document then placed Russia at the heart of the Euro-Atlantic system, quote, We are equally convinced that a qualitatively new relationship between NATO and the Russian Federation will constitute an essential contribution in achieving this goal, unquote. Moreover, the declaration created the NATO-Russia Council to serve as the principal structure and venue for advancing the relationship between NATO and Russia, unquote. In effect, this declaration officially ended the Cold War. Over the next decade, Russia took significant steps toward integrating the Russian armed forces into the Euro-Atlantic defense system. In 2002, the Russian armed forces joined those of NATO in the peacemaking mission in Kosovo. The Russian Navy participated in NATO active endeavor naval maneuvers in 2004 and 2008. In 2011, 
Russia participated in the NATO Vigilance Guys military maneuvers and also allowed NATO military equipment to transit through its territory to Afghanistan. Two factors, one surmountable, the other decisive, caused relations between Russia and the West to deteriorate. The first factor was NATO's intervention against Milosevic Serbia in 1998. Boris Yeltsin called the action a tragic mistake of American leadership. The crisis fueled the anti-Western rhetoric of Russian nationalism. However, subsequent events proved the effect to be temporary. The joint NATO-Russia participation in the Kosovo peacekeeping mission promoted at least minimal cooperation and mutual trust. The second factor proved to be much more decisive, the rise of Vladimir Putin in the Russian political landscape. There are two very different sides to Putin's public image. The first image is smiling and cooperative, immortalized at the meeting with George W. Bush and Silvio Berlusconi at the Rome Declaration signing in 2002. On that occasion, he projected an image of friendliness toward the West, hinting at a future close alliance. The second Putin image was manifested during the Crimea and Ukraine invasions in 2014 and 2022. This Putin is far more belligerent, blaming, quote, the scum of pro-Western traitors, unquote, for the unrest. This second Putin appears to surprise Western leaders, especially those who negotiated with him at the turn of the 21st century. What made him move away from the pro-Western attitude? Is this a profound development or merely a change in strategy? Had he been bluffing to buy time to rebuild Russian military strength to USSR levels? Speculation aside, Russian nationalism advanced with all its pan-Slavic and anti-Western implications. Complementing this development is increasingly popular nostalgia for the Soviet Union, especially the World War II leadership of Joseph Stalin. This new attitude promotes the belief that NATO was an instrument of aggression during the Cold War. Furthermore, the NATO threat against Mother Russia continues today. Under this scenario, Russia's future lies with non-European nations relatively hostile to the United States, for example, China, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. This new vision abandons the spirit of the Gorbachev and Yeltsin eras, withdrawing into an increasingly aggressive nationalism. These pan-Slavists demand remilitarization. They echo the Brezhnev doctrine by speaking of limited sovereignty, for neighboring countries. Their goal is not collaboration, but a restoration of the imperial role of czarist and Soviet memory. The revived nationalism contains more than a touch of Machiavellianism. Its partisans hold that earlier complacency towards NATO led to a new escalation of tensions with the West. In turn, this escalation created ideal conditions for suppressing Russian democracy and the restoration of the Soviet Empire. A favorite refrain of the new Russian nationalists is that NATO and the West promised not to move east into former USSR areas of occupation. 
They allege these negotiators during the Gorbachev and Yeltsin eras informally made these promises. Those reassurances, the narrative continues, were the key reasons for the previous cordial attitude of the Russians toward the West. Mr. Putin expressed this vision of events to justify his February-March 2014 annexation of Crimea. On March 18, 2014, he made a long speech at the Kremlin, including the following excerpts. Quote, What seemed impossible became a reality. The USSR fell apart. Things developed so swiftly that few people realized how truly dramatic those events and their consequences would be. Many people, both in Russia and in Ukraine, as well as other republics, hoped that the Commonwealth of Independent States that was created at the time would become the new common form of statehood. It was only when Crimea ended up as part of a different country that Russia realized it was not simply robbed, it was plundered. Our Western partners, led by the United States of America, prefer not to be guided by international law in their practical policies, but by the rule of a gun. They have come to believe in their exclusivity and exceptionalism, that they can decide the destinies of the world, that only they can ever be right. They have lied to us many times, made decisions behind our backs, placed us before an accomplished fact. This happened with NATO's expansion to the east, as well as the deployment of military infrastructure at our borders. Unquote. However, the evidence does not favor Putin's interpretation. Indeed, the atmosphere of cooperation between the Russian Federation under Boris Yeltsin and the Western powers described above refutes Putin's argument. The only justification for the Putin view is that between September 90 and March 1991, the USSR participated in various international conferences. As a result, it signed a series of treaties of friendship and cooperation with the United States and the European community. The minutes of the meetings, now declassified, reveal several utterances from U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, among others, which seem to indicate oral promises that NATO would not expand east. However, two facts refute Putin's interpretation. The first is that these statements never became part of the texts of the agreements. Vague assertions do not automatically become parts of written agreements unless the agreements include language that gives weight to those oral statements. However, a more fundamental fact is that the Soviet Union ceased to exist on December 21, 1991. Even though the United Nations allowed the new Russian Federation to take the Soviet Union's vacant place in that body, the Soviet Union never became the Russian Federation in any legal sense. Boris Yeltsin's government had no more right to enforce agreements made by the USSR than the Bolsheviks of 1917 had concerning treaties signed by the Tsar. Indeed, since 1994, the Russian Federation has maintained a monopoly on the nuclear arsenal of the former Red Empire. However, it did not inherit the debts with foreign countries, nor agreements with other powers. 
From the Partnership for Peace in 1994, to the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997, to the Rome Declaration in 2002, all the new agreements were signed by the Russian Federation, which thus assumed responsibility under the terms of those agreements. At the time of the dissolution of the USSR, Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power in the world. In May 1992 and September 1993, two very hard clashes with Russia risked escalation into atomic conflicts. Those tensions subsided thanks to the mediation of the United States, which convinced Ukraine to surrender its nuclear arsenal to Russia. In exchange, Russia promised to respect Ukraine's integrity. The agreements were first violated in 2014 with the Russian annexation of Crimea. The aggression continued on February 24, 2022, with the Ukraine invasion. It is useless to dust off the minutes of old meetings with a political entity that no longer exists. The only reasonable course is to abide by the treaties to which the Russian Federation is a party. Putin violates these pacts every day that the Ukraine conflict continues. Henry Kissinger's so-called peacemaking has fared no better in China. In fact, you could argue that his policies turned a weak and poor nation into a strong and aggressive adversary. In the middle of any such conflict stands Taiwan. The intrepid island nation has been a steadfast friend of the United States and its values. In return, the U.S. has treated it with indifference. Sometimes, it appeared that the U.S. wanted to pretend that Taiwan doesn't even exist. Mr. Edwin Benson details this situation in his essay, Xi Jinping's Threats to Taiwan Highlights the Dangers of America's Fictional One-China Policy. Taiwan's future under Chinese rule is not bright. The U.S. State Department should acknowledge this reality. On November 14, 2022, President Biden publicly assured Chinese dictator Xi Jinping, the one-China policy, our one-China policy, has not changed, has not changed. We oppose unilateral change in the status quo by either side, and we're committed to maintaining the peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits, unquote. Unfortunately, Xi Jinping has changed the status quo of his one-China policy. He insists that Taiwan must soon submit to an imposed union of the two states. During the same press conference, President Biden tried to reassure anti-communists that I don't think there's any imminent attempt on the part of China to invade Taiwan, unquote. Less than six months later, CNN reported on China's reaction to a meeting between then-House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen. Quote, China has started three days of military exercises around Taiwan after the island president met the U.S. House Speaker in defiance of repeated threats by Beijing. These exercises, dubbed United Sharp Sword, have been denounced by Taiwan. China sees Taiwan as its own territory and has not ruled out using force to bring it under its control. Unquote. The military exercises included 71 warplanes and nine Chinese Navy ships. How could this not be regarded as a threat? 
Yet President Biden blithely acts as though there is no threat, placing his faith in the fiction that the U.S. has the same one-China policy that sustained the status quo of the last 50 years. The nation of Taiwan came into existence in 1948, when the Chinese defeated Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. Chiang and his government escaped to Taiwan and established themselves there. With U.S. support, the Republic of China, or Taiwan, claimed to be the legal ruler of all China. The communists made the same claim in reverse. They said, and continue to say, that Taiwan is a part of China. The current confusion stems from the misbegotten detente policy pursued by President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1974. Mr. Nixon based his policy on another fiction, the strained relationship between the USSR and its Chinese communist allies. The left-wing press praised President Nixon's revised relationship with Red China. When he visited China in 1972, Cameras captured every moment of the trip, interspersed with delighted news anchors heralding the groundbreaking diplomatic effort. Later, President Jimmy Carter decided to extend full and official diplomatic relationships with China. Two key red Chinese demands for normalization were the closure of Taiwan's embassy in Washington and the expulsion of the island nation from the United Nations. President Carter pasted on his trademark smile and agreed. There was little that Taiwan could do other than acquiesce to the new situation. However, Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act to, quote, preserve and promote extensive, close, and friendly commercial, cultural, and other relations between the people of the United States and the people of Taiwan, as well as the people on the China mainland and all other people of the Western Pacific area, unquote. President Carter signed it on April 10, 1979. Thus, the new law created a relationship with Taiwan that evolved into a strange and ambiguous situation in which the U.S. supported and traded extensively with a nation whose existence it did not officially acknowledge. The U.S. maintained, and maintains, an unofficial presence in Taipei through a private corporation called the American Institute. As a result of this Byzantine situation, the United States claims to have a one-China policy, while maintaining relationships with two countries, both claiming to be the real China. This highly ambiguous situation cannot last indefinitely. Indeed, the communists have set a deadline of 2049 for reunification. Taiwan now faces a threat similar to the two-systems arrangement that preceded the British handover of Hong Kong. The British acquired Hong Kong in 1842 and operated it as a crown colony. Since World War II, Hong Kong has developed as an economic powerhouse, not unlike Taiwan. In September 1984, the British signed a treaty with China agreeing to turn over Hong Kong in 1997. In return, the Chinese agreed to respect the political and economic liberties that the people of Hong Kong had enjoyed under the British. Again, the liberal press heralded the move. Hong Kong was a tremendously important trade center in and out of China. 
The media informed the world that it was in China's economic interest to maintain the status quo under what was referred to as a concept of one country, two systems. Hong Kong would be a special administrative region until at least 2047. Accordingly, the British pulled out on July 1, 1997. Of course, the communists broke their promises more quickly than they made them. In 2020, Xi Jinping's government forced Hong Kong to accept a national security law. The Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, says that, quote, Since then, authorities have arrested dozens of pro-democracy activists, lawmakers and journalists, curbed voting rights, and limited freedoms of the press and speech. These moves have not only drawn international condemnation, but have also raised questions about Hong Kong's status as a global financial hub and dimmed hopes that the city will ever become a full-fledged democracy, unquote. While the CFR acknowledges that, quote, Chinese Communist Party officials do not preside over Hong Kong as they do over mainland provinces and municipalities, unquote, the city is already controlled by the Communist Party. Xi already claims to be the sole authority in interpreting Hong Kong's fundamental law. Therefore, Taiwan's future under Chinese rule is not bright. The U.S. State Department should acknowledge this reality. The United States should abandon the fiction of the one-China policy and recognize that Taiwan is a nation that the United States is committed to protecting. Anything less is an open invitation to China to move against Taiwan whenever Xi Jinping wishes. This concludes America Needs to Sort Through the Disastrous Foreign Policy Decisions Inspired by Henry Kissinger. Thank you for listening. Mr. Laredo's essay is richly footnoted. Any listener who wishes to review these sources can gain access to that essay in its original format. A link to that essay is provided in the show notes. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.